Hey, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to the Integrated Health Podcast, where, by the way, we are now on iTunes. You can search us on iTunes at Integrated Health Podcast. Please, if you like the show, you know, throw a little review on there. Uh, subscribe to, to the podcast. That would help us out a lot in promoting the show. Um, that's my only plug for us. I'm glad that you're listening. Thanks for joining in. I'm here, as always, with uh, Mr. Angelo Keeley. So glad to be here with you, Danny. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, man. Yeah? I slept. I actually slept pretty well last night. Did you really? <laughs> I did. Huh? No, actually, I didn't because right now... Um, my, I have a one-year-old, and my uh, wife has asked that I do the full-time um, late-night duty so she Ooh. can, like, sleep and we can change the rhythm. Yeah. So I'm uh, I'm on that duty right now. Well, it'd be really be great to have, like, someone who knows more about sleep than we do. Gosh, I just wish that there was someone who could help me understand it better and oh my kind of God. explore it. Well, our guest happens <laughs> oh, to be... Gosh. Hi, Colleen. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Colleen Ernstrom is our guest today. And we are delighted that you are here. Thank you so much. Um, tell you guys a little bit about Colleen. Colleen is a licensed clinical psychologist. She is board certified in cognitive behavioral therapy, otherwise known as CBT, and specializes in acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT. She graduated from the University of Colorado at Boulder, who's going, by the way, to Michigan this weekend to play them in football. But there's more to that story. She had a private practice in Boulder from 2001 to 2011 and co-founded the Boulder Center for Cognitive and Behavioral Therapies in 2006. She has previously served as an adjunct faculty for the University of Colorado at Boulder, Department of Psychology and Neuroscience. She knows our good friend Sona from the show and the University of Michigan Department of Psychiatry. She currently works in the family program at the Department of Veterans Affairs in Denver, Colorado. She is co-author of the forthcoming book, End the Insomnia Struggle, published by New Harbinger Press, which is going to be out October 1st. And you can get it on Amazon, right? Yes. Okay. Again, the name of the book, in case you want to Google that and pre-order it, you really should because you're going to want to after the show, is End the Insomnia Struggle. All right. So anyway, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thrilled to have you I'm here. I'm excited to so be here. So happy to have you here. I can yeah. feel the love in the room. Well, the, the, <laughs> the love is here. You had me a jam band. <laughs> you had me a jam band. Anyway, and go blue. And go blue. Yes, that was the joke we talked a little bit about. Um, I'm traveling to Michigan this weekend to see CU play against Michigan, and she's a Michigan fan. But turn me on to some good restaurants, so it's all good. Anyway, enough about football. Um Colleen, so you have had a tremendous career so far. You look sounds good on paper, doesn't it? Looks really good, yeah. <laughs> and I'm not going to call you an expert, but you've had a lot of different experiences so far. Starting off working with people in a variety of different therapies, CBT, and so forth. What? How did you get interested in sleep? How did we get to this place of sleep? Well, sleep is a huge part of all the work in therapy. There's rarely a person that you meet with depression or anxiety or something else that isn't also having some sleep problems. And about 10 years ago, we, uh, Alicia and I, Alicia Bross, who's the co-author of this book, we were um, approached by a psychiatrist who wanted uh, some psychologists in the community to be doing CBT specific for insomnia. It's called CBTI. This world is filled with acronyms. Too many, but it's okay. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, no pop quizzes on it. No. And um, we were not familiar with that model, but having had the training in CBT, we said, well, we'll check it out. And so we started doing that and um, found out that it was a really great model that really helped a lot of people. Very cool. And starting off really quickly, if somebody does not know even what cognitive behavioral therapy is, what is cognitive behavioral therapy? 
Well, I could put a little plug in for Sona's podcast, as she does a great job talking about that as well. And she refers to them as life skills. And they're really ways of managing your mind and body to move towards the things that you care about. Sometimes I affectionately call them Jedi mind tricks, because it's really about having a relationship with your mind um, to help you move towards what you really care about. Very cool. So... I don't suffer from insomnia personally, um, but I've had a few different times in my life where I did, where I felt really anxious and I couldn't sleep. And it's a horrible feeling. And you're looking at the clock and going, oh my God, I'm not getting sleep. And then you're worried about the sleep that you're not getting in addition to actually not sleeping. Talk about insomnia. What is insomnia? Are there causes for that? Like what's going on with people who have insomnia? Yeah. So what you're talking about where we have these acute stages or phases of, of problem sleeping is super common. And for most people, when the stress goes away or they adapt to their new um, experience, then the insomnia goes away and they start sleeping again. What we're really interested in is for the people that get stuck and they get stuck in these new patterns of sleeping that aren't serving them. And insomnia is really about people who are um, trying to sleep and they're not able to. So a lot of us are sleep deprived and we're really not talking about people who aren't giving themselves adequate opportunity. We're really focusing on the people who are trying really hard to sleep and they're not getting the kite kind of sleep that they want. And specifically, we are talking about having trouble falling asleep, having trouble staying asleep, waking up too early in the morning, or even if you're asleep feeling like it's not restorative and the way that you measure that is the next day feeling not rested or not fully functioning or not totally um, sort of focused in a way that you would expect to. Um, and what we have really learned over time studying sleep is that part of the reason that we get stuck or the people that get stuck in this new pattern of, of poor sleep is because they're um, really trying to do everything they can to fix it. But the way that sleep works, the things that we think are going to be actually really effective for, for fixing our sleep are actually counterproductive. So for example, when you're not sleeping, what do you do? How do you fix it? Me personally? Yeah, anyone. Anyone in the room? Oh, let's see. Um, I breathe. I try to breathe. I try to breathe deeper and just focus my breath on being slow and deep and try to trick myself into being relaxed, even though my mind is fast. Uh huh. Interesting language there, trying to trick it. Yeah. So that's a, a very common. I got to I gotta convince my brain that it's okay, that it needs to relax and it needs to sleep. I have to trick my brain into being okay every single day. Uh huh. <laughs> and how does it work? <laughs> I'm writing a book about it. And it'll, come, it'll come out after your book, Tricking My Brain. Well, I it's think a follow-up to things that didn't come to me while I wasn't doing my homework. Right. Well played. I think in, inherent in what you're saying, though, is this really important human response, which is to fix it and mm -hmm. to, to really be focused in the here and now. I need to fix this now. Our brains are wired to fix. And the issue there is that in that moment when you're trying to trick your brain or you're trying to relax, that is often not going to work with sleep. Anybody that has been struggling with sleep, if you say to yourself, I am going to sleep right now. That doesn't usually work. Like will isn't helpful. Right. And, and also, uh, you know, sort of the opposite of that, which is, oh, no, I'm not going to sleep. That's not helpful either because mm. it ends up activating your body. Mm. And so we have this pattern in our book. We call it the insomnia spiral. And that's why the book is all about ending this, this struggle because we have this natural intuitive desire to fix it. But when it comes to sleep physiology, that's really the opposite of what we need. And so it ends up actually exacerbating or maintaining some of the rhythms that we already have. So the longer that we toss and turn and get frustrated in bed, the less we sleep and the more these problems 
perpetuate. So how do we end or, or, or reverse that spiral? What are some techniques that are useful to ending the struggle of insomnia? So we, we start with this paradigm shift. And the paradigm shift is, um, I think, really complementary to the stuff that you talk about in your podcasts, which is really shifting away from a fix-it-now-in-the-moment attitude towards a longer-term promoting of health and well-being. So you really want to think about your sleep as any other relationship. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes care. It takes kindness and compassion. And so the first piece that we talk about is really this paradigm shift of shifting away from the fix-it. And that's really um, a bit of a challenge in our brains. Um, So we use a metaphor. Um, We live in Colorado, so of course we use the metaphor of skiing. (laughs) And we talk a lot about learning to ski trees. Any skiers in the room? Mm -hmm. Snowboarder. Snow, same difference. Same thing. Same difference, yeah. So uh, skiing terrain with trees, Mm -hmm. what what would you recommend? Uh, Don't do it because I'm not good enough. (laughs) I just I just go don't, straight. Don't hit the tree. <laughs> don't hit the tree. Don't hit the tree. Yeah, you know. Right. So if you don't want to hit the tree, you're most likely when you're first learning to ski trees to get that fear, should I be doing this? And then also we really focus a lot on the trees, which is, again, a paradigm shift because once you know how to ski trees, you know that you actually need to look at the white space. And so a lot of what we talk about um, when we're working with people with sleep is this idea of it's natural and human to want to look at what you don't want to hit, but it actually backfires. And the shift there is to start looking at the white spaces. And so in sleep work, when we're promoting healthy sleep over time, we want people to be looking in between the trees. And that takes some practice and some conscious effort because your brain wants to look at what you don't want to hit. So, so what are those white spaces Yes. in sleep? Yes. So we want to think about things that are promoting sleep. So um, uh, consistent rhythm and routine is a really big part of that. Um, you mentioned um, working with your one-year-old and being up in the night disrupts your routine. And so what do you do to compensate? How do you manage that? Nothing consciously right now. I'm is that working? Like, I'm just trying to like hold it together. Is yeah. that working? Uh, in the short term, it works. I'm yeah. just kind of like waiting for this period to be over. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would put a label on that. I would call yeah. that patience. Uh-huh. I would call that acceptance. I would uh-huh. call that willingness. I'm mm-hmm. willing to have this. And I would I would tap into your values on that. You're willing to have that because you've got this young dependent child on you who really needs and deserves your attention. Mm-hmm. And maybe know? the white space yeah. in that situation is, well, this is a stage. I know it won't be forever. Uh-huh. Yes. Right now it's important that I'm actually doing this, not mm-hmm. the focus of this damn kid is keeping me awake and I'm not getting any sleep, right? Mm-hmm. Like that would be the tree. Exactly. Okay. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. And that, it just to categorize things, that's more of an acceptance and commitment intervention, that willingness and that acceptance. And how, um, just to just to give a little bit of an overview, so cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is the gold standard for insomnia problems. Across the board, all of the powers that be and the medical boards are all recommending it. It's a lovely intervention. It's non-pharmaceutical, which means that you don't have to take sleep medications to use it. You can be using sleep medications and use it, but it's this really lovely protocol where you um, work a lot on rhythms and a lot on, um, you know, sort of waking up at the same time and going to bed at the same time. But we live in the real world. We have one-year-olds. We have things that keep us up at night. So um, there, um, Alicia and I really started using these acceptance and commitment therapy tools to um, help with some of 
the CBTI interventions to help people be more willing to be in a phase. Or if you had said, you know, I don't, I don't want to be in this phase, I need to do something different, then you might make some behavioral changes during the day or during the night to accommodate for, you know, how you're, how you're managing being mm-hmm. a parent of a young child. And so Alicia and I um, really appreciate the acceptance and commitment therapy tools because they really help us to be more willing to um, engage in things that um, will help us to return to our sleep. Willingness is a huge piece, whether you're going to do nothing or whether you're going to do something. Mm-hmm. So so doing nothing is a choice. And that's something that I think a lot of people overlook. And we make this assumption that if you're not sleeping well, you want to do something. But sometimes the best thing to do is be willing and say this is a phase and it's going to you know, be over before I, I know it. But you can also use willingness for when you need to make a change. And when you're ready and willing to make a change, then what we really look at is creating these consistent rhythms so that the body has a predictable um, expectation of when you're going to sleep and when you're going to be awake. The parts of the brain that um, manage sleep are also the things that manage your appetite and your mood and your wake cycles. And, and if you think about all of those, the more predictable um, routine that your body has, the more that that locks down and becomes a um, reliable pattern. So if one of our listeners is a mother of four and has a hard time falling asleep, and there's a couple things I'm hearing you say, and tell me if I'm wrong. One is it's really important to not focus negatively upon the sleep itself like oh i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to be going to sleep i'm going to try to go to sleep early tonight but i know that i won't be able to i hope it's not a struggle you're kind of throwing trees up already mm-hmm. right yeah but let's tweak that a little okay. bit let's expect that to happen because okay. we don't want to label because that's what brains do brains categorize they judge they they find the trees so don't make it wrong and also don't let it be your main focus okay yeah okay so so what's your advice to somebody who's, you know, when we say changing the patterns, are we talking about going to sleep at the same time? Are we talking about eating, eating at a particular time? Uh, is, it a, is it a more regimented schedule that will enable and foster that ability to fall asleep? Is that, mm-hmm. am, I, am I on the right track? You are. And the answer to that is, is that it really depends. And it really depends on all the variables in that person's life, what their sleep was like prior to the onset of the problems, what their environmental stressors are, what their life structure is, how much they have to manage during the day and night. And that's really what we set out to do in the book is to make it individualized. So one size does not fit all. And so the way that the book is set up is really if, if, if this is where your brain goes, go to this chapter. If this is what you're experiencing, you know, during the night, go to this chapter. And so the answer to that question would be really dependent on more information about that person's needs. And we read more about that in the end of Insomnia. And again, I really hear this. I was so appreciative of the way that you describe choice and willingness that it's such it's like a very empowered position to either say, you know what, I'm okay with this being as it is right now. I'm going to be patient with that. And if I'm not, then what changes can I make? Yes. And that really feels like it's that simple. Yeah, and, and so yet really powerful. Yeah, really powerful. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, so- and not getting caught in, I have to make these changes. I don't want to make them. Or I'm not willing to accept this. I want something to be different, but not going through the strategies and the, and the tools to really develop whatever the customized plan is for me to be 
okay and to get the sleep I wanted to focus on the snow. Yeah. And I think that empowerment is such a key piece when you do engage in an actual um, CBTI program, when you're engaging in a specific program. And I think this goes back to what you were really looking for. Like, what does it look like Um, when you're engaging in a program and you're saying, okay, I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to make some of these changes because this isn't working for me. There's a lot of discomfort up front. This Mm -hmm. is a very um, potent model and it's a very slow moving model. And so you're going to be uncomfortable and you're not going to be seeing a lot of gains for anywhere from, you know, a couple of, of months. And so you're really going to need to come from this place of willingness and this place of empowerment um, to get more specific about the elements. So CBT, cognitive and behavioral really speaks to the elements there. And the research shows that the integration of those two have the best outcomes. So Behavioral alone are things like getting up at the same time every day. That's really hard on the weekends. And that's really hard when you've been up in the middle of the night with a child. Um, Going to bed at a relatively stable time period, not taking naps. Um, We have some behavioral interventions where you, if you're not sleeping um, for approximately 20 minutes, give or take, you're instructed to get out of bed and go do something else until you feel sleepy. These are really difficult and challenging things to do. And so adding the willingness component to it helps you to adhere to the program long enough to see the outcomes. So the behavioral pieces are all focused on anchoring your body into a routine that it can expect, and then also um, really um, strengthening something called the sleep drive, which is this innate understanding of um, sort of cueing your body when it's time to sleep and cueing your body when it's time to wake. And then the cognitive piece, cognitive is just your headspace, your your thought process is, excuse me, really designed at going after it, it is such a heady relationship sleep when you're not sleeping and you want to and you desperately need it and then you're sleep deprived and it's the world feels toxic. You know, the brain becomes really busy and frenetic. And so the cognitive piece is aimed at managing all of the anxiety and discomfort that comes along with struggling with sleep. I love this idea, kind of echoing what Angelo said, just changing the relationship to it. Because you look at most other behaviors, whether you're dealing with addiction, issues with food, issues, issues with aggression and anger, it's really making friends with it first that enables change to happen. And that seems like a big part of that is is changing a, a sort of unconscious victim stance which is that there's nothing I can do. This is my destiny. This all just uh, to something that's more informed and, a- and, and action oriented. And yeah. I like also that you're saying that, hey, it's hard. You know, it's, <laughs> it's hard. Really hard. Yeah. It's hard. It's yeah. not like if you're going to change this, you're, you know, you're suffering from insomnia and you want to end it. We have some techniques that'll work. Yeah. And we've got some things we can do, but the commitment has to be there because it might be, it might get worse before it gets better. It might feel more uncomfortable yeah. before it starts to feel comfortable. Yep. And I think that's true with almost all change. You know? Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. And, and that victim, pe- that victim model, that one's an easy one to spot when you're outside of it. It's really hard to figure out Mm. when you're in the middle of it. But we also have other relationships with sleep. I've met people who actually feel really bullied by it or um, sort of pressured. You know, they're always catering to their sleep. And one of the things we talk about in the book is really having people assess how you, do you sleep to live or live to sleep? Mm. And really sorting out what kind of relationship you have at any given time. Victim is one, but there are many other ones as well. Can you speak more to that bully? I don't understand it. Um, So 
Uh, maybe that was a, a poor word choice, but there's this relationship where you feel like you're always pursuing it and oh, then okay. you can't quite get it. Like the living to sleep? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that's the other sort of pitfall of the CBTI models. I've, I've met people who do the model to a T, but then they also tell me, well, I'm not accepting phone calls after 7 p.m. and I can't remember the last time I went out with my friends. And, um, you know, and, and the cost there is the quality of life. And so what we're really trying to find is this sweet spot where you have a life that feels worth living and you're not, you know, choosing sleep over the life, but then you're also really allowing a relationship with sleep to be a part of a part of that life. What about screens? I've heard different studies about screens. Well, how does screen screens. use and, and looking at a screen influence sleep? Have you seen anything with that? That's yes, it, it is a big deal, but it's a lot more flex. I, I would like to believe that how we manage that should be more, a little bit more flexible because we get this doom or gloom thing, which mm. is then what do we do? We feel bad because we can't <laughs> sleep and we're on our screen and then we've got this guilt thing. <laughs> and I'd, I'd like to be able to maybe try to find a little bit more of a flexibility. So the reason that screens are challenging is because of the light that they emit. And the flat, the new flatter screens emit more of the spectrum of the blue light. And the blue light mimics daytime light. And so this is a powerful cue. One the most um, important way that our circadian rhythm regulates our sleep and our wake cycles in um, regards to the outside world is through light. And so light is a cue um, of when to be awake and when to be asleep. And before the onset of electricity, we had far fewer problems with sleep. And so these screens confuse the brain and they... Um, get the brain to sort of um, suppress melatonin, among other things, which is relative towards, you know, sort of moving the body through those rhythms. So the reason that we don't want that is because it just throws off the circadian rhythm. There's a great study that showed it's not just about falling asleep, but it's also about staying asleep. So light is um, kind of a problem across time as well. So the way that we really think, so you know, a lot of the new products are actually having um, these nighttime monitors that come on the new phones and the new tablets. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it replaces the blue light with orange light. Mm -hmm. And that's a really wonderful thing because that's really what we care about. Although I should, I guess I should, it's important to say the other part about screen is, is when you're doing something activating. If you're watching an adventure movie or you're playing a video game that's got you really active and focused, that's also a cue to the brain that it's time to be awake and it's time to be getting things done. And that's confusing if it's the time at which you really want it to go to sleep. So when I work with people with screens, it's a willingness question. What are you willing to do? And if they're not willing to give up their screens, then using these um, apps or the programs to block out the blue light is a really important thing. Um, if we really are as optimal as possible, we don't want screen for a minimum of two hours before the um, prescribed bedtime. And really, we actually don't want any light at all. So I've had people install dimmer switches or, you know, go with uh, um, a non-blue or non-bright light. You really want low light as possible. But I also think it's important to meet people where they are. And if mm -hmm. people say, you know, this, this is something that is important to me, this is something that is meaningful for me, then we ask them, are you willing to put films on your screen? Are you mm -hmm. willing to 
to wear. We ha- you can buy um, sunglasses that block blue light, mm-hmm. um, and it's really that sense of meeting people where they are. But you're not going to club them with their screen. <laughs> that wouldn't be something that you would do. You, and you would be amazed at how many people hear that from right. their providers. Right. You know, right. shame on you. Right. And, and Black yeah, and white. Yeah, that, yeah, we're not into shaming. Right. In the end, it's, it is a choice, though. I mean, if you're sharing the information that ideally you wouldn't be using the technology two hours before bedtime and the person says, I want to do that. I mean, that person, I'm doing that right. I do that last night. Uh, I did that last night. I'm making a choice to not have as good a sleep as I could have. Right. Because I want that. Whether I want that, I want the entertainment value. I want to be able to put in more time for work because I want to be able to be more successful or because whatever. I mean, I'm. it's a choice I'm making. That's right. And then my job would be to make sure that you're very aware of the consequences of that choice. And if there's any ambivalence in there mm-hmm. to get you to consider trying a program, a program is not a forever. It's a short-term experiment to collect some data. And that's mm-hmm. a huge part of what we talk about too, is, is that if, if there's any ambivalence in there, let's set up a program for you where you're going to do it for, you know, four to six weeks. So there's got to be some willingness in there where you would collect data and use that data as a measure or a compass for whether or not your quality of life shifts. Mm -hmm. What is healthy sleep? (laughs) Uh, Well, it depends on your age. Certainly, we know that adolescents have different shifts in sleep, um, and it depends on... um, Uh, sort of a bunch of factors, I would say it's probably easiest to talk about what it's not. So it's a myth that everybody needs eight hours of sleep. That's not true. Um, And so um, it averages from six to eight. What they ask you to do is provide an opportunity for seven. That's why I really wanted to say early on, you know, when we talk about insomnia, we're talking about people that give it adequate opportunity. So, you know, um, I've worked with people who came in and said they weren't sleeping. And then we we did a diary where they kept track and they were actually only in bed for four hours. That's not really giving your body adequate opportunity. Um, Healthy sleep is, um, we call it sleep architecture, and it's a a bunch of different factors. One of the factors that we look at is um, the number of hours that you're in bed divided by the number of hours that you're asleep. Mm. And healthy sleep, um, by definition on average, is about 90%. That's called a sleep efficiency. So when you have a lot of broken sleep, and this actually goes back to that paradigm shift of fixing sleep. So um, if you're waking up in the night a lot, let's let's say you're in bed eight hours and you're sleeping you know, seven hours, but then you start waking up a lot and you're having a lot of broken sleep and so you're not feeling tired, a really natural response would be spend more time in bed. And so then what would happen is is that um, you give your body more opportunity. And this is one of those sort of counterintuitive moves because when you give your body more time in bed, it takes advantage of that. It says, oh, now I'm supposed to do that seven hours and 10 hours. And it actually starts to thin out. Mm-hmm. And that actually creates more Um, awakenings. And so now you're frustrated because you're thinking, hey, I'm doing this. I'm giving myself adequate opportunity. It's not working. And so um, healthy sleep is really about making sure that we have a high efficiency, that we're actually compressing that sleep. And that's actually a behavioral technique where we actually ask people to give themselves less time in bed in order to return to that compression. And is that where, if, if there's a myth or a story about oversleeping, is that potentially what it's related to? I'm thinking of people that are in that, you know, spend 10 hours in bed and they still don't feel good. 
And like, I've just heard like Brian Wilsoning, kind of. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, people yeah. discussing like that you can sleep too much. Right, right, is that right. Potentially, what that is. Well, it's certainly part of it. Yeah, uh-huh. and there's also something about um, uh, the the sleep lab here at CU Boulder, the physiology group. Ken Wright and those guys do fantastic work, and some of their research has shown too that you can make. Um, as many cognitive mistakes um, with too much sleep as with too little sleep. Hmm. So it, it's certainly all part of it. And, and that's part of getting back to what is healthy sleep. What is healthy sleep is for you personally to figure out what your magic number is where 90% of the time, give or take, this is you know all natural ebb and flow, um, is spent sleeping. And then within that, um, I, I don't know how much detail you would want me to go into, um, you when you're sleeping, you're going through different stages of sleep. There's non-REM sleep, there's REM sleep. Um, We progress in different orders and different ways throughout the night. Some of it's about mental recovery. Some of it's about physical recovery. Um, I don't know how much detail. I love it. I love all this stuff. What about dreaming? How does dreaming play into this? When you're dreaming, I've heard that when you're dreaming, you're actually not in as deep of a sleep when you remember your dream. Is that Well, dreaming's out of the scope of my practice. You really want to dream expert on that. Um, and, And... it's it's really not something I would feel comfortable talking about, although okay. it's fascinating. It is, right? Yeah. Yeah. I once taught a, a class on this um, up in Steamboat, and I got there, and they all thought it was a dream class. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm not well-versed on that. Because <laughs> people are fascinated. They really are. It's, it's a fascinating subject. They really are. That could be another podcast. And how about napping? Is, is, uh, you know, that's kind of my napping. drug of choice. I like to nap. Um, not really, but when on weekends, if I can, I can sleep less than six hours at night if I can get a nap, and I'd love to get a nap, and that seems to be the ideal thing for me personally. Uh-huh. But w- any sounds like you might that? have an opinion on napping. For me, for me, <laughs> that's what matters. For me, but that's what you know? uh-huh. for you. That yeah. is the heart of it. For you, see, yeah. I hear a lot of workability in what you're saying. For you, that is workable. It allows you to be more functional. Um, there's some different physiological effects of napping, and there's some benefits to that. Um, so for you, I would say keep it up. For somebody who is struggling with sleep, it's one of those informed, um, you know, sort of moments where um, it can dilute your sleep drive. So if you're having trouble falling asleep and staying asleep, and you're sleeping during the day or napping at other times, it's taking away from the drive that is required to keep you um, asleep. And so, but if it's working for you, I'm not going to challenge that. All things being equal, if your sleep's not working, part of the program is typically to ask you to um, not take naps during your sleep program to see how that impacts the sleep at night. Okay. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. When people oversleep, and again, I'm putting a label on it, right? But people who... More than what they need. More and, than what they need, yeah, and they just yeah. kind of don't get out of bed, da, da, da. It's not is optimal. That, is that in some ways the opposite of what we're talking about, or is it really kind of the same thing discussed? Like, in other words... I would think that this would get more into sort of the cognitive piece and right. the emotional piece yeah. of, you know, people can sleep to avoid. Yeah. It can be something exactly. where, you, where you literally aren't facing your life, but yeah. you're constantly tired, but you don't have any problem actually sleeping. I'm just guessing. I don't know much about this, but I'm kind of guessing that it's actually kind of a similar dynamic in the brain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think at the heart of it, you're an ACT therapist because that's exactly it. What is the function of this behavior? And that's really when people come to someone like myself or they pick up the book that we wrote, they're really not feeling like it's working and they're really looking at the function of that behavior. And for some people, sleep is an escape. It is an avoidance technique. And if that's their choice, then we're not going to 
you know, push against that. But if, if they're okay if, with it, they're okay. Right. But typically mm-hmm. if somebody is, you know, sort of asking questions, is this okay? There's probably some part of it that's not working for them. Mm-hmm. And so we're always looking at what is the function of that. Very, very cool. Can I ask like one, uh, can I use myself as a subject for a second? That's sure. the best. Okay. So I'm interested, Colleen, in getting some feedback on the areas in my life that I think I want change around sleep, but that I've struggled with for 30 years. Um, So the two things that come up immediately, one is uh, this drive to want to stay up later, Mm -hmm. to want to like re-engage, like to restart at 9 p.m. and just like start a whole new thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then necessarily having to start things early in the morning and that doesn't really work. Um, Combined with there's also a drive sometimes to like want to be up early and just kind of be in the freshness of the morning early. But that means I have to have such a radical practice. Like if I want to wake up at four or five, I feel like I have to go to sleep at eight or 9 p.m. Um, and then the other thing is the snooze button. <laughs> I go through different That's t- a really good one to talk about for okay. sure. Yeah. So, so I'm really interested in both of those. I go through periods of being able to get myself to go to sleep earlier, but then it, you know, it'll fall right. after a while. And there's just this, it feels almost like an addiction, a drive to want to stay up later. And then typically those go together. When I can go to sleep earlier, I, I can get committed to no snooze button. I just wake yeah, up. Yeah. What's your relationship with the snooze button? When I can go get myself to go to sleep earlier and commit to waking up at an earlier time in the morning, I won't use the snooze button. I will just get up. Huh. Like when I get in the 5 a.m. cycle, mm-hmm. I'll just do it. I'll just get up. Then there's there's these behaviors that feel almost like they're cascading that go more towards That's a great word for it. wanting to just stay up later and then not set a specific time I need to wake up. Mm-hmm. The, the, the It feels like the less aware, decisive, intentional behaviors around what time I'm going to go to sleep correspond with less intentional design around what time I'm going to wake up, which directly relate to snooze button. Right, right, right. And in addition to that, just a question about your physiology. Do you tend to, all things being equal, if you're on a deserted island, you could do whatever you wanted. Would your body want to stay up late or want to get up early? I feel like my body would want to go. The body question is interesting. My body, I think, would want to go to sleep early. My mind uh-huh. wants to stay up late and yeah. go, go manic and like, do some stuff. Yeah. Well, and I think that's part of what you're really identifying. And it's interesting that um, that the um, snooze button sort of reflects that. So mm-hmm. when you intentionally choose to not stay up late and to go to bed earlier, that almost feels like it's your uh, more natural circadian rhythm, which makes it a little bit easier to manage the snooze button. Although I want to say universally, the snooze button is really difficult. Um, Allison Harvey is a sleep researcher at Berkeley, and she talks a lot about what she refers to as the sleep inertia, which is that snooze button, really difficult transition between getting yourself out of bed. And she really um, prescribes sort of ripping off the band-aid. So if you really struggle with the snooze button and getting out of bed, what is recommended, if you're willing, is um, to not to actually cut it so close that you got to get right up and get out of bed with no... It's not a buffer. It's no buffer. It is ripping mm-hmm. the Kill band. The it button. is ripping the Band-Aid off. And I, I will say from personal experience, it's pretty painful and so effective once you get it because mm-hmm. then in about two or three minutes, the body really calibrates and it's through it in that way. So in terms of snooze buttons, that's what I would say if you're struggling with it and you're interested and willing, do a program for you know two to four weeks where you literally give yourself just enough time so there's even a little bit of 
of an adrenaline hit. If I don't give, get up right now, I'm not going to be able to get it done and see whether or not that shifts it. But then this other question is, I think it's such a question of our generation where we're multitasking and we're working and we're raising our kids. And sometimes the only time that feels like it's ours are those late hours at night. Mm-hmm. And they're really compelling. Mm-hmm. And so I really... Um, I think that you've got a good conversation going there in terms of um, what, which one am I going to choose? In the ACT world, we talk about this as a bit of a, of a values clash. And what that means is, is that you're really caring about two things, or maybe three or four or five. And in this instance, you're caring about your sleep. You're also caring about your own sort of sense of fulfillment and also about having peace maybe to kind of ground you so that you're the parent that you want to be. And the values clash is when you care about all of those things, but then you have to make a choice. Which one am I going to care about tonight? Which mm-hmm. one am I going to? And when we're promoting a longer-term relationship with sleep, which one am I going to um, care about or choose at this chapter in my life? Mm-hmm. And so that's the conversation. That's more in that cognitive realm um, of um, you care about all of those things, and life is asking you to choose which one makes the most sense now. But actually honoring that that feels hard mm-hmm. because every time you choose to go to bed early, there's going to be a part of the brain that's like, oh, I miss, I miss that time. Yeah. Does that yeah, it sounds, resonate? Yeah, it resonates. Sounds like I need to enroll in a program. Because <laughs> it, it's like the feedback, right? The, the, um, the information is present. The knowledge is there. The kind of realization of the choices. And then it's, it's like not wanting to, um, to measure it too closely to make a change. Yeah. That's what it feels like. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's a good plug for Boulder Resources. We are so lucky. There's a big um, to-do that there's not enough people doing this kind of work. And here Mm -hmm. in Boulder, we have so many of them. My my colleague and co-author, Alicia Bross, has the Boulder Center for Cognitive and Behavioral Therapy. Mark Kiki and Adam Wirtz have Sleep Therapeutics. Vega Kaufman, who did an awesome Ted Boulder talk on CBTI, and um, her um, colleague Natalie have Summit Sleep. So if somebody is interested in that, there are so many great programs here in town. We're, We're lucky. lucky. We really yeah, are. We, we are so lucky. So lucky. I got a white yeah. noise machine. That's like the circular thing. Yeah. And oh, like, the round white ones? Yes. Those are the only ones manufactured in the USA. Like, well. Feels good, <laughs> doesn't it? Feels, Feels great. good. Feels great. Maybe that's why I'm sleeping so well at night. But... I use it and I don't wake up at night anymore. It really, really works for me. So it's a plug for white noise machines for people. I don't know why. Yeah. The other question I had for you was, I no matter what time I set my alarm, so if I set it at different times, it doesn't matter. I wake up seven minutes before my alarm goes off no matter what. Hmm. Sometimes I doze back off knowing it's coming, but I always wake up beforehand. Is there a reason for that? Does your mind, can you actually program your mind? Because if I don't set an alarm, I sleep, I just continue sleeping. Do you have a history of that? Of 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 that time, what what's the actual time? Seven minutes before the alarm. Oh, it's usually uh, six six forty three a.m. So six forty three is when yeah. your body snaps to it. And yeah. has that been going on for a fairly long time? Yeah, most of my life I've woken up at around six a.m. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's usually been what I yeah, do. So yeah, so that's your circadian rhythm. So okay. so um, that's a fascinating. Um, I think it's chapter. We switched the chapters on. I think it's chapter three. But basically, you know, at the time that you're waking, what's happening is is that that circadian rhythm, that drive to wake, becomes stronger than your sleep drive because you've satiated it because you slept through the night. And that's something that we really um, pay attention to as we're sorting out um, when people want to sleep. 
as well as when they need to sleep. So there's also another disorder called a circadian rhythm disorder, which is often um, confused for insomnia, oftentimes comorbid or co-occurring with insomnia, where you can actually sleep, but not at the time that you're set up to sleep. Mm. And so that's something that we see with college kids and shift workers and other people who um, want to sleep at a certain time, but they're their schedules aren't allowing for that. So that's important information if you were to engage in a sleep program. I get the image when I hear circadian rhythms. I get the image of insects dancing. <laughs> like a else? cicada? Cicada, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think of cicadas too. It's actually a cool, it comes from um, circa diem, so about a day. And it's a fascinating concept because internally our rhythm in a, the wiring of our brain and our physiology is set up to repeat this cycle of wake and sleep in about a day. So it's actually closer to 25 hours. Mm. You could see the problem with that since we live in a 24 hour right. <laughs> cycle. Right. And so part of the rhythm is that it uses things like light exposure to calibrate and keep us in rhythm with the 24 hour. Interesting. So, Fascinating. I mean, would one naturally observe that their, their bedtimes and their wake up times without the influence of, you know, if they, if they, ate right and didn't have screen time, et cetera, that they could see those shift Perfect over the person. year because of twenty five because of the twenty five hour cycle? No, it doesn't shift as long as you've got this exposure to light and then temperature is another of what we call it's a zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. So these are the elements that anchor us. Um, and you don't even actually have to do things perfectly to maintain a cycle. That's the beauty of the human body. There's mm-hmm. no such thing as perfect. And mm-hmm. there's not one of us out there that's going to bed at exactly the same time and doing everything and eating right all the time. So the body's really designed to to actually manage quite a bit of variability. Um, just when we go to change our clocks, you know, next in the next uh, couple of months, you know, that's a variability. When we do time um, trial, when you, you know, go to Ann Arbor and you right. go to a different time zone, the body mm-hmm. is really well calibrated to manage that and to um, sort of move with that. And so that's why we look at the ways that we behave and the ways that we think for when we get stuck in a um, cycle that's no longer working. So I think it's really important that most of the time the body is really well equipped to manage that. Mm-hmm. But when you're out of sync or you're destabilized and you're looking to make some changes, thinking about your light exposure, thinking about your rhythms and your schedules, doing some of these behavioral CBTI protocols will help you to kind of get back into that routine. Are there any questions we didn't ask that you wish we did? Um, you know, I feel I, I, I like to talk a little bit about the distinction between sleep hygiene and CBTI. Mm. Um, that's something that yeah. comes up for a lot of people. So um, we have time for that? Sure, go for it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so sleep hygiene is a lot of what people hear from their friends and, and um, family members when they're not sleeping. And that's all those prescribed rules, I'm using air quotes here, of what you're supposed to do around alcohol and caffeine and getting up at the same time. Um, and a lot of people get frustrated because they'll implement a sleep hygiene program and their sleep won't improve. And what we want to think about with sleep hygiene is, um, I like to think of it as analogous to oral hygiene. So flossing and fluoride treatments and brushing, it's really meant to maintain a healthy baseline. But you can be flossing and brushing and doing everything right and still get a cavity. You go to your dentist and the dentist will tell you, keep 
flossing, keep, um, you know, brushing, but they won't tell you that that's how it's going to um, get rid of a cavity. You need, at that point, you need an additional intervention to manage the cavity, but you're still doing this baseline preventative work. And sleep hygiene is really like that. It's this baseline preventative work, but when you have a sleep problem, and typically the definition of that is when you have all these problems that we mentioned, falling asleep, staying asleep, not feeling restorative, for more than 30 days, a little arbitrary, but that's kind of the cutoff, then we really think of it, um, you know, really analogous to a cavity. Sleep hygiene isn't going to shift you in the way that you would like to. That's when you really want to consider the CBTI protocol because it's really, you've got the sleep hygiene is a part of that, but it alone is not the program that when people say, oh, we have all these great techniques for sleep, they're really talking about CBTI. And I think that's a really important one because people get really frustrated and um, really, um, disillusioned, like, oh, it's not going to work for me. And so part of our message is it's actually this whole other program. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Tell us again how to get your book. Um, well, New Harbinger, it's it's available everywhere. You can get it on Barnes & Noble. You can get it on Amazon. If you go to Goodreads, if anyone's on Goodreads, they're doing a giveaway right now of 10 books. Um, so it's it should be available anywhere you go. It's just... Um, hopefully being printed right now, Excellent. maybe even <laughs> maybe even in shipment right now, That'd but it's so supposed cool. to be available on October 1st. October 1st is yeah. the release date. And the yeah. title is, again is? It's End the Insomnia Struggle. Okay. And I think, you know, really based on the title is a lot of what we've talked about today, meeting people where they're at, asking them what they're willing to do, and if they're willing to move forward, really trying to personalize um, the program to meet their needs. Colleen, thanks for coming on. Thank you so it's much. It's been really this nice. Really to have. Yeah, it's really Thank fun. You. Yeah, amazing guest. Oh, Would you come back you. again? I would yeah. love to come back. Great. Thank you for yeah. being Great. so interested in sleep. Yeah, well, we maybe maybe are. maybe next time we'll we'll do it at like three in the morning. Oh. Yeah, just to see how that see changes. Like. You know, just shake it up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, Liam, thank you. Our producer Liam Mir over on the boards, the chairman of the boards, Liam, <laughs> over here. Um, one more plug for iTunes, right? So iTunes, we're on iTunes now. We'd love your support. Go to Integrated Health Podcast. Yep. Check it out. Also, if you're uh, a fan of our Facebook page, we're going to post it up there on how to get there and do that, right, Liam? And uh, if you can, write a review. We'd love to have a review. If you're a fan of the show, we'd love it. And any feedback you have for the show, we'd love to always hear it. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Angelo. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Colleen. Thank you. Yes. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. All right. See you all next time.